Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Charles Dickens is regarded by many to be the greatest English novelist of all time. Among the masterpieces that Dickens wrote are a tale of two cities, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, and A Christmas Carol, as well as many others. But Charles Dickens called Jesus' story of the prodigal sons the finest short story ever written. And I think most of us who are familiar with the story would agree with that assessment. The, the story is about a father who has two sons. It's a mistake to call this story the parable of the prodigal son, singular. And we'll see why in a minute. The younger son is a rebellious, overconfident young man who demanded total freedom from the restrictions of his home. But once he gets away from home, he quickly burns through all of his money. He abuses his freedom. He wrecks his life. And only when he ends up in a pig pen does he come to his senses and realize what a fool he has been. Repentant, broken, humbled, he returns to his father's house with a rehearsed speech begging forgiveness and begging food. But the father has been praying for just such a moment. And he runs out to greet him as he sees him coming with open arms to welcome him back home. The older brother, meanwhile, proves to be equally as rebellious against his father. Not by running away and squandering his inheritance, but by staying home and souring in his own self-righteousness. Ultimately, the father has to console and counsel him to see the big picture of what his brother's sudden and safe return means to the entire family. It's a great story of hope. The father in the story represents a grace-filled God, and the rebellious sons represent lost humanity. The main message of the parable is the redemptive love of God for his rebellious children, for both those who have strayed and know they're lost, and for those who've stayed and think they don't need a savior. This story has inspired more sermons and books to be written and conversations than perhaps any other of Jesus' parables. It inspired me as I prepared this week for uh, this message. I'm going to do a whole series on this uh, later on uh, down the road. But this parable also contains some practical insights for earthly fatherhood. As you read this story, you get the sense that this is a very realistic account of what happens in many homes. I think Jesus intended it to be that way. You can feel the tension in the family. You can hear the rebellion in both boys. You can sympathize with the father agonizing to make some very difficult decisions. You can see his heart is breaking. You can notice how two children from the same mom and dad can be so different. You witness the deeply embedded jealousy 
and rivalry between siblings. This is a story about a father who has to deal with some very messy family dynamics as many fathers have to do from time to time. I heard about a father who was a business executive and he returned home from a trip just when a nasty thunderstorm hit, crashing thunder, severe lightning. He went into his bedroom about 2 a.m. and he found his two children in bed with his wife, apparently scared by the loud storm. The dad resigned himself to sleeping in the guest room that night, but the next morning he set his children down and explained, it's okay to sleep with mommy when the storm was bad, but when daddy was expected to return home from a trip at night, everybody needs to sleep in their own bed so daddy can sleep with mommy. Understand? They said, okay, daddy. He went out of town several weeks later on another work-related trip. His wife and children came to the airport to pick him up. The plane was late and a large crowd of people were waiting in the terminal for the arriving passengers. As the businessman entered the waiting area, his four-year-old son came running at him, shouting, Daddy, Daddy, I've got good news. The father waved back and said to him, What's the good news, son? And his son shouted over all the commotion, The good news is that nobody slept with Mommy while you were away this time. Everybody's looking around the terminal. Where's mom at? (laughs) Fathers are often called to deal with some very messy family situations. And that's what this father was called upon to do, to deal with a family that has a lot of tension going on and whose priorities are grossly distorted. Listen to these words written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Colossae. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, why did Paul not say fathers and mothers do not embitter your children? Or why not parents do not embitter your children? I believe it's because if the father in the family does not carry out his role as a loving leader of the family, it will result in embitterment and anger and a wounded and a wound in a child's spirit that is so hard to heal. I remember reading one study some time ago that was done on male, on the male prison population of all the correctional institutions in the state of Texas, and that would be a lot. And they discovered that 80% of those incarcerated had a hostile relationship or no relationship with their father. And when they got old enough, they took out that frustration on other authority figures. Fatherlessness adversely affects individuals, families, neighborhoods, churches, our city, and our nation. Studies show that fatherlessness impacts education, poverty levels, social behaviors, health care emotional development, and a list of other factors that are essential to our children's well-being. Friends, there are certain things in the dynamics of a family that only a father can do. The role of the father is a role that either brings lasting fruit or lingering frustration for the rest of our lives. Today, we're going to look at three unique contributions that a dad can make in a home. 
Here they are. Devotion, affirmation, and direction. Everybody say it, Lake County, Apopka online. Let's all say these three words together. Devotion, affirmation, and direction. If you're real sharp, you'll notice that the first letters of each of those words spell what? Dad. Before I get into talking about these practical principles, I want to speak briefly to two groups of dads listening or watching today. Group one is those fathers who have a feeling of failure in their hearts. Men are typically get-or-done people. They're used to jobs and situations where things can be programmed and diagrammed, and they know when they're doing good and when they're not doing so good. Fatherhood is just the opposite of that, isn't it? Fatherhood is not an exact science. Sometimes you may be doing great, but you think you're doing terrible and vice versa. You're dealing with developing personalities and hearts under construction. And there is no visible scoreboard to gauge your progress. Consequently, I've learned over the years that many fathers carry an overwhelming feeling of failure inside them. They really wonder, am I doing a good job or not? And this is further complicated by the fact that many men are hampered by their inability to talk about their feelings and frustrations. Women get together and they can begin to talk instantly of how frustrating it is being a parent. You get men together and they're more likely to talk about LeBron James's kids than they do their own. <laughs> Fathers who have a deep sense of failure could leave a service like this feeling intimidated. Truthfully, I've been a father for over 35 years now, and I still feel intimidated by the role that fatherhood requires of me. Sometimes as I speak on issues related to the family, I think there's no way our family measures up to that. Or you're not very good at that. You've got no right to talk about that. But I wanna give you two encouraging reminders, dads. Number one, we're studying the ideal and maturity is being able to hold on to the ideal while living with the real. And number two, you never become better by wallowing in regret over the past. It's never too late to change regardless of the age of your children, Dad. The second group I need to address are those men, women, and children who did not have a good father or who didn't have a father at all. There's no easy solution to that. There's no quick fix for that. The absence of a father leaves an unhealed wound in a person's heart. And if that's true in your case, if your father did not play his role well, you basically have two options. One option is to be bitter about it the rest of your life. And the second option is to be God's child. You can be bitter about what your earthly father did not do. That won't change anything. That's a losing strategy. I encourage you, if what I described this morning does not describe the father you had, number one, forgive him. Remembering, as one writer put it, that forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and then discovering the prisoner is you. Number two, seek that role model in your heavenly father. Ask God to father you. 
He is the father to the fatherless. And he stands ready and able to fill that void. Let's look at these three unique contributions that only dads can make. The first distinct contribution the fathers can make is devotion. And you can see that in this parable. When we read these words, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. Think for a moment what this son had done. This rebellious, ungrateful son had approached his good-hearted father without a lot of tact and demanded, give me my share of the estate. Now, the original hearers of this story would have been shocked by such a brazen request. If you were a father with two sons at your death, your estate would be divided with two-thirds going to the oldest son and one-third going to the youngest son because the oldest son in that day has got a double portion. But this only happened after the father's death. Basically, this younger son is saying, I don't want to wait around for you to die, old man, to get what I've got coming to me. I want it now. You see, the younger son only wanted the father's things, not the father. As appalling as this son's heartless request is, the astonishing response of the father is even more mind-blowing. You see, an ancient Middle Eastern father would have been expected to drive such a defiant son out of the house with verbal, if not violent, physical blows. But this father chose not to react that way. Jesus simply said, so he divided his property between them. You see, as in most cultures, the bulk of the wealth of a family is often tied to the property they own, suggesting that this father sold off all or part of his real estate holdings and gave the appropriate portion to the younger son. It's hard to overestimate how unconventional, how shocking this would have been. We aren't told how old this boy was. Was he 18? Was he 21? Was he 30? We don't know. We also don't know how long they've been having this debate. I'm sure there are many reasons we don't know about why the father decided to do what he did. So the boy takes off and he enjoys a few weeks, a few months, a few years. We aren't told how long of what Jesus called wild living. And we aren't told what that entails either. That's left to the hearer's imagination because what's considered wild living to me may be different than what you think, but we all understand that it would be contrary to what the father would want for his children. In modern terminology, we might say he hopped a jet to Vegas and lives the life of a high roller for a while. But then there's an unexpected economic downturn. His luck runs out. He can't flash any cash. His credit cards are all maxed out. He has to turn his Tesla Model S back into the dealership because he can't make the $900 a month lease payments any longer. His funds are gone. His fun is gone. His friends are gone. And he winds up down at the Salvation Army sweeping floors, cleaning toilets just to get a hot meal and to have a place to sleep indoors at night. I don't know if we have an accurate analogy to what happened to this boy. Jesus said he ended up feeding pigs. And if you want to put a good Jewish boy where he would bring shame to his family, have him slopping hogs. And yet while he's doing this demeaning job, something begins to happen deep inside this boy 
Someone has described the human heart as a kind of like an onion, meaning it's full of layers. And you can see how the first layer is peeled off when he lost his money, but he still wasn't given up yet. When he lost his friends, there went another layer, but he still had a rebellious heart. Then he loses his dignity. He loses his custom-made clothes, his designer shoes. He had to pawn everything, even the special family ring his father had given him. Finally, there he sits in the middle of a pig pen and all the superficial layers are peeled away, fully exposed. And I know I'm speaking to some parents right now who have children wallowing in pig pens today. And you're just having to watch as one layer after another layer of their stubborn pride is painfully peeled back. And you wonder, what's it going to take for them to come to their senses? But we need to realize all of us have been prodigals too, haven't we? And all of us know how important it is to understand that once we get to that last layer, that dark inner core, to realize I have a father who still loves me. When he got to the point where he'd spent more time talking to pigs than he had to people, something occurred to him. Jesus put it masterfully like this. When he came to himself, that is such a brilliant understatement. He had a rare moment of clarity and he said to himself, I can go home to my father. You see, he had an image of a father who would let him come back home. And that's one of the reasons he went back. I think that if he had an image of a father who yelled at him as he stormed out the door, if you walk out that door, don't ever come back, he may very well have spent the rest of his life with the pigs. And I wonder how many people are hanging out with the hogs because they don't think their heavenly father would ever take them back. They've gone too far. They've messed up too much. They've been gone too long. And maybe today, someone is watching or listening right now who needs to hear this. God isn't mad at you. God is mad about you. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn you, but to save you. And when you hit rock bottom, it's okay because Jesus is the rock that came to rescue you and renew you and restore you. And somebody needs to hear that right now. This son understood his father's deep devotion to his children. And so he gets up and he begins that long, humbling journey, one step at a time, back to his father's house. He walks that familiar road he'd walked so many times before, but he's not the same anymore. He's a different person. Note that when he left, he said, Father, give me my share. When he returns, he says, Father, make me a servant. That's a sign of a changed heart. And what is the father doing as he comes up the path? The father is looking for him. This is one of the most beautiful word pictures in all of scripture. Luke 15, 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. You know, it's a common sight for us in modern day America to see adults running or jogging. I don't know why they do that, but some people like to do that. 
But in the cultural setting in which Jesus originally told this story, it was considered undignified for adults, especially adult men, to run anywhere. Aristotle of Greece once said, great men never run in public. But there is a willing abandonment of what society calls dignity in the longing of a father for a loved but wayward child. Someone has made this observation, and I think it's brilliant. This is the only time in the entire Bible where God is pictured as being in a hurry. He runs to reconcile. He is fast to forgive. What a wonderful demonstration of devotion. Folks, never underestimate the role of a father's devotion to his family. Never underestimate the power and strength and security it gives a family when they know that no matter what they do, their father is always there for them. Dads, never underestimate the anchor that you provide for your family in stormy times. And if there's any question in your family about your devotion, now I want to encourage you to clear it up by doing what this father did next. He practiced affirmation. Do you see that? When the son came back, the dad didn't stand in the house with his arms crossed and a smug look on his face saying to himself, I knew one day he'd show up again. Wonder what he wants now. Once again, this dad just does just the opposite. He ran down the road. He threw his arms around him. He gave him a big bear hug. He affirmed his child's worth with a loving embrace. And then he did something that most dads find it very hard to do. He spoke some very meaningful words to his son. And I want us to consider for a moment both of those essential aspects of affirmation. The first is this, the importance of touch. The scriptures say when Isaac blessed Jacob, Listen to this wording in Genesis 27, 26. Then his father said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. Now, that might seem appropriate if Jacob was four, but by this time, he was closer to 40. But Isaac still wants to kiss his son. In Genesis 48, when Joseph presents his sons Ephraim and Manasseh to his father Jacob, he said in verse 9, these are the two sons God's given me here. Then Israel, Jacob, said, bring them to me so I may bless them. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. We could spend a whole sermon talking about the importance of touching. We read about Jesus having people bring their children to him and it explicitly says he touched them and blessed them. It's no coincidence that physical touch transmits love. Dr. Dolores Krieger is a professor of nursing at New York University, and she has made numerous studies on the effects of therapeutic touching. What she found was that both the toucher and the one being touched derived a benefit. How? Dr. Krieger says inside our bodies is hemoglobin, the part of the red blood cells that carries oxygen to the tissues. Repeatedly, Dr. Krieger found that hemoglobin levels in both the toucher and the touchy's bloodstream go up during the act of laying on of hands. Isn't that interesting? As the hemoglobin levels are invigorated, body tissues receive more oxygen. This increase of oxygen energizes a person and can even aid in the healing process if he or she is ill. Ill. There's power in a loving touch. 
There's something doubly precious in a tender touch from a father. The touch of a mother seems to come more frequently and spontaneously. And sadly, we may even take it for granted. But when we feel that touch that we're not as accustomed to, that we may not receive every day, it means so much. The second essential aspect of affirmation we see in this father's actions, and that's the power of words. In Luke chapter 15, verse 22, the father said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The father did not make the boy parade around in front of, other, uh, in front of others smelling like a pig. He wasn't seeking to add to his humiliation. No, instead he graciously covered his son's disgrace. And this is symbolic of the fact that when we're born again into Christ, we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of baptism as being the place where we put on Christ. The father said, put a ring on his uh, finger. This meant the son was back in the family. Every male in the family had a unique signet ring that they wore that indicated they belonged to this father and this tribe and so on. This signet ring represented status and standing. Then he said, put, uh, uh, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Slaves didn't wear shoes. And the son had basically sold himself into a form of slavery and the replacement of shoes represented he was free again. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. In every Jewish farmer's barn, there was a calf that since birth had been fed a special diet of wheat and barley, and that calf would be slaughtered only on a great day of celebration, such as a wedding or a religious feast, and everyone in the community would come and dine with you. And without hesitation, the prodigal hears his father say, kill the fattened calf, not the skinny calf. Not just any old calf, but bring out the good stuff because my boy has returned to me. How would that make you feel? You see, it wasn't enough for the father to hug him. It wasn't enough for the father to say, oh, I guess you can come back. He overdid it. He went to extremes so that his child would know without a doubt how he felt about his return. This is why Tim Keller called his best-selling book on this parable, Prodigal God. You see, we think of the word prodigal as wayward, but the word in its original usage meant reckless extravagance, having spent everything. The father's welcome to the return of this repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand repayment from him. And that's what Paul gets at when he says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their trespasses. Friends, Jesus shows us the God of great expenditure, of extravagant grace, who gave his all, who gave his best, who poured himself out on our behalf. Indeed, God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. Not only do our children need our devotion and affirmation, thirdly, they need our direction. 
Remember, there are two brothers in this story, and we often forget that. Why is this a story about two sons? Well, we need to look only back to the beginning of the chapter. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, the younger son represented the tax collectors and sinners that were irresistibly drawn to Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law represented, are represented by this older brother, the son who stayed home, who kept his nose clean, who did all the work, who handled all the chores. And when he sees this rebellious baby brother returning home and he hears dancing and he hears the music and he sees a celebration is taking place, he gets angry, so angry in fact that Jesus said he refused to be around him. So the father, true to his reconciling character, goes out to him. You see, the father in this story not only goes out to reconcile with one son, he goes out twice to reconcile and console with both of his sons. And the oldest son explodes on his dad. Dad, you never even killed a goat for me. When this son of yours, notice he doesn't even say, call him his brother. When this son of yours comes home from blowing your money, you kill the best calf we got. I don't understand you, dad. That's not fair. I want you to notice how this loving father immediately takes control of this sensitive situation and directs his family's focus back to what is most important. He points out the big picture to him. Son, your brother was lost. He was as good as dead to us, but now he's found. He's alive to us again. This is a great day for our family, son. We have to celebrate his recovery. This is such an important contribution that a loving father makes to give steady, determined direction to the family about the things that matter most. He doesn't get drawn into emotional controversy. He doesn't get sucked into sibling rivalries. No, he stands above it all and he says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. I mean, the the older boy wouldn't call him his brother, but the dad did. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's how Jesus ends the story. Does the older brother listen to the father's heartfelt appeal and finally welcome his younger brother back home? Is the family reunited? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. And you know what's the worst thing about a cliffhanger? (laughs) I've just seen how many of you got that. (laughs) Let me conclude by saying that the first and foremost task of a father is to determine for your family the spiritual direction they should go. Dads, that's job number one for you to remind your family on a regular basis that the most important thing in life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or as we say here at Journey, to love God, love people, and serve the world. Fathers, listen, don't pass that off to your wife. Don't shove that off on your mother or a coach or even a student leader here at church. 
You assume this God-given duty. You be the one that daily emphasizes however it works best for you. Maybe it's through devotionals you do with your family or through bedside talks one-on-one with the kids or or through emails or text or maybe just an old-fashioned letter. However it works for you, the most important thing in life you communicate to them is not making a lot of money, not getting a good education, not climbing the corporate ladder, not just having a good time, but the number one priority is that we all stand before the throne of God with our circle family, uh, our family circle unbroken. Max Lucado says that growing up in West Texas, he had three close friends that did everything. They went to the same Sunday school class. They played on the same baseball team. They went fishing together in the summer. Mark, Tom, Randy, and Max, they were inseparable. When they graduated high school, Lucado says every one of those other three boys walked away from the church and became unfaithful to God. Only one ever came back to the Lord, Max Lucado. Lucado says, I've often wondered why it is that I came back when they didn't. It was Max Lucado's mother who pointed out that he was the only one of those four boys whose father went to church regularly and expressed a meaningful faith. The ancient Israelite leader, Joshua, once said these words that every dad needs to say to his family. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I'd like for all dads, if you're able, to stand. Here in Apopka, here in Lake County, just the dads. Dads, would you stand? Lake County. And if you're online, if you're a dad watching online, you stand right up with them. Stand right up with them. I want to have a special prayer on behalf of all these fathers. But fathers, I would like to say to you on behalf of your family, we need your devotion. We need to know that you're going to be there. We need to know that your family is more important to you than your work or your hobbies. We need to know that and we need you to affirm that. We need you to affirm that with your words and with your loving touch. But most of all, we need for you to tell your wives and your children what is the most important thing in this world, more than a salary, more than a roof over our head, more than bread on the table, we need to know the importance of living for the kingdom of heaven. I want us to pray together right now. And I just want to say, if you're a family member or a loved one near that father that's standing, it's okay if you just reach out and lay a hand on him right now. Just go ahead and put your hand on him right now. What an honor it is that you allow us to call you father, Lord God. We praise you, God, and give you glory. Thank you that you have touched us through your son, that you've spoken to us through your word, that you've been devoted to us and set clearly the course ahead of us. Father, you know that these men standing here today carry a task on their shoulders that is really too big for their shoulders. It's a tough world in which we live with so many temptations and so many threats. Father, would you please give them strength? Let your spirit be upon them to hold them up and make them strong when things are difficult, to keep their focus on you when there's more bills to pay than there is money to pay them, when there's more questions to answer 
than wisdom to provide answers. Please give them that sense of devotion that will not allow them to give up. And Father, you know that we're going to fail as earthly fathers. Please forgive us. Thanks for not giving up on us, God. And help us to forgive our children when they fail and when they wonder. And for those who are still waiting for prodigal sons and daughters to return even today, please bring them back home safe. We thank you so much for these men. Keep them faithful until the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.